Good morning, everybody, to our workshop, Well-Being as a Priority for the Next EU Commission. To me, this workshop is a bit of a culmination of the emerging themes of this Gastein, the 2020 Gastein, because we've discussed the well-being economy with the Finnish Ministry of Health. We've discussed co-benefits in health promotion. We heard about the global EU uh, health strategy, which is all intersectoral, and again, we are trying to find out about the connections between the different sectors. We try to overcome the false dichotomy between health and the economy. We're trying to make the linkages between environment, health, nutrition, and all the different sectors. And actually, as an underlying political project, we try to avoid falling back into some sort of austerity policy or to create some naive growth policy. So, talking about the economy, we are very happy to have here a panel, actually, where we have some of the economy represented. We have Kunigunde from the pharmaceutical industry. We have Susanne from the telecommunication industry. We have Elizabeth, who've been on both sides, actually. You have worked for the government, and then you went to, um, to uh, work for pharma, and now you are working for one of the best renown policy uh, think tanks in, uh, in Brussels. And we have Vesna. Even though she is, of course, a government official, she has a pension for civil society in working with it, and I know that she, is, she can't wait to talk about this particular um, item. So we have really a very, colorful, a very colorful panel, a panel which represents the reality of the economy. So we are talking about the well-being economy with the economy and with wider um, public health uh, community. As objectives, originally, we had formulated like um, creating awareness for the issue, but I think we are all aware now of it after all the sessions we had in Gastein. So we can go right into the, into the particular policies and the ideas what could inform the next commission and also actually the next um, parliament. So um, the workshop falls into three phases. We are very keen to have it as interactive as possible and that all of you have a chance to speak. So we will have some input statements from our panelists. And then in the second phase, we will have working groups. And uh, you are already assigned to uh, certain questions, actually. And we have somebody in the working group who will then report back in the third phase when we have the plenary again and try to bring this together in a question and answer. In parallel, we also have online groups, actually, and we will also hear back from the discussion of the online groups. So, I already took one minute more than I was expected to take, <laughs> um, uh, but I'm uh, very happy now to invite Kunigunde. And Kunigunde, actually, you are very much behind, behind this movement and behind this, yeah. uh, this group, and uh, it's not the first time, actually, that you are here in Gastein with exactly. them. You have developed it quite successfully. So please, your input statement. Yeah, thank you. So indeed, I wanted to talk a little bit about our coalition, All Policies for a Healthy Europe, so, and that is the session that we organize here. In fact, about the genesis, um, the health mandate has never been so strong as now, but that was not the case four years ago when we were here for the very first time with our coalition of policies for a healthy Europe in this very room uh, at, at Gastein. At that moment, there was a serious concern that the role of EU um, would, uh, it was at stake at that moment. And so there was a really the risk 
of um, worst case scenario that the commission dedicated to health would disappear. And so we could not let that happen. And of course, as industry, you cannot act alone. And so JNJ connected with interest groups, with patient organizations, other industry to mobilize and to really um, advocate for more health on the agenda of um, EU. And so that was then, at that time, four years ago, we were here at Kastein to develop the strategy for and the vision for all policies for a healthy Europe with the audience at Kastein. And so the fundamental principles um, of all policies for a healthy Europe is, first of all, cross-sector collaboration. Secondly, it is having a holistic consideration of the consequences of public policies on health determinants. And that in all areas, say it transport, economy, trade, education, etc. And so what we mainly advocate for is to strengthen and improve the accountability and the awareness of policymakers on the impact their policymaking has um, on health and, and uh, well-being. And this is exactly at the crux of the economy of well-being principle that has been adopted by the EPSCO, the social and um, 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 uh, what is it again? <laughs> the, the, um, yeah, in fact, the EPSCO Council in 2019. Um, so um, under the presidency of, of the Finns. And there it is clear that social priorities, including health, should be at the heart of a balanced and inclusive de development of Europe. So health and well-being is a building block, is a cornerstone for a strong uh, economy. And so over the last years, we have grown from strength to strength. We have stakeholders from within and beyond the healthcare sector. So we, our coalition um, has stakeholders from telecommunication, uh, science, sports, energy, um, um, and tech. So it's fair to say that um, we are, in fact, a key partner for the Commission to advocate for health and all policies, a well-being economy as a building block for a European health union. And so that European health union is, of course, um, uh, Europe is in a good position already for health outcomes. Um, but there is a strong tendency for health inequalities within and across the countries. So, um, yeah, the aftermath... Yeah. Can I ask you something? Yeah. I, I take three messages from you. Number yeah. one, the industry has an interest that health is high on the political agenda. Exactly. So that's, that's, that's very clear. And number two, you didn't use the word equity, but it was big in some of the other workshops we had uh, yesterday and the day before. You also say that um, you, are, you have an interest in a balanced and inclusive economy, which comes close to equity. That is new for me to hear this from the, from the industry because uh, uh, uneven growth is sometimes so yeah. also something the industry likes. And the third thing, and that I would like to hear a little bit more from you, you said you, um, you do advocacy, you know, you try to influence. How do you do that? Well, we gather together with all those stakeholders and we, um, we align on, on visions to really get out, talk to people, have one-to-ones um, and work with those stakeholders from across the sectors yeah. to get all this expertise together 
to build um, uh, a narrative for, uh, and especially now when we have the upcoming elections, to build a narrative, a concrete yeah. strategy with tangible objectives for the European Health Union where they can play a role. And is in it this that you're just banging door at the commissions, or, or, or do you also have something to offer, some deals to make with uh, the policymakers? Um, we do both. Okay. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much. Um, uh, next one on my list is actually Susanna. And Susanna, you come from the telecommunication industry. And, you know, first moment I thought, that's nice that you're here, but what has it to do with health, actually? Please, fill us in a little bit. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be here and to be part of this great, by the way, 100% female panel. <laughs> um, so, so that's why I'm here, you know, I'm here for the quota. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So why is Vodafone here a tech company? You might have wondered, as Matthias just, just mentioned. So um, in Vodafone, we have um, a clear focus on healthcare, and um, we, we showed it in building a alliance together with Deloitte and uh, opened up a Vodafone Center for Health. Why have we done that? Because we've seen the, the immediate need of technology and what, what role technology can play in the healthcare world, in healthcare systems. So we are convinced um, after that uh, period of the pandemic, or still we are in the, in the period of the pandemic, it became so increasingly clear that the use of technology can help governments, but also the EU, to achieve a range of policy, policy objectives beyond healthcare. So, um, I want to give you some examples, concrete examples, where we think um, we have to focus on. So it starts with citizens. We, we want to make sure that all citizens have access to healthcare professionals. So now you might say, oh yeah, that happened during the pandemic. We've seen telehealth, um, uh, telemedicine popping up here and there, and true. Last year, um, more than 60% of healthcare providers have invested into um, telehealth solutions, and that will increase in, in this year and next year. Um, but we, we see the need that we have uh, a continuous investment into that, and that we are also making sure that the investment which is being taken, uh, that is going the right direction, that systems speak to each other, that interoperability is given. Um, but at the end of the day, really, citizens can profit and benefit from it. And it doesn't matter where people come from, where they are, rural or, or city-based, or, or city it um, doesn't matter how old they are, doesn't matter on socioeconomic status, etc. So we want to make sure everyone has access to it. Um, while we are, were in the pandemic, uh, for sure as a tech provider and telco provider, we have done several projects, but um, to, to connect people, and we've seen clearly that there is a... Um, a benefit in health, so health status just improved for, for people and we also made sure, um, and I want to make clear that this is not just an advantage for, for citizens at that point, we also want to make clear that if we invest into telehealth, telemedicine, we also see healthcare providers benefiting from it. Uh, there is a huge burden, more than 55% of healthcare providers in in the US have showed symptoms of, of uh, burnout during the pandemic. That is shocking to us, right? So it means we are already in shortage of healthcare professionals. So where that, where is that going to? So we want to make sure they also profit from more remote, yeah. from more mobile 
Yeah, Susanna, um, very interesting. Actually, we have in the EuroHealth issue you have in your bags, Arthur Olesch wrote um, a piece on the European digital space, and I think that is something where you have particular interest in it, isn't it? And on, on which sides are you there, actually? Has the industry a completely different standpoint than maybe patient organizations or providers, or is there some convergence you see? Not at all, not at all. Uh, we very much look at uh, the patient benefit at the end, and it, we are look, for sure we are uh, looking at the European Health Data Spaces um, uh, project and, and also try to give our input of, of technology side. Um, for sure we, we see a lot that systems have to speak to each other, but at the end of the day, no, you know, if we have healthcare professionals here, and, and I'm speaking about new tools helping you to make you more efficient or connected, you might say, not another tool, um, uh, which is true, right? We have to make sure that not just healthcare professionals, but also citizens at the end can really use it and benefit from. And yeah, I think that the data yeah. act is important, but it's also needed that we look at the adoption and the usage of the tools, yeah. and, and uh, we have focus on What that. we actually heard yesterday in the workshop on uh, global EU health policy, it will also play a role in this uh, global EU health policy, the digital data space. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sabine. That was really good. Now Thank it's you, you um, <laughs> Elizabeth. And um, actually, Elizabeth works for a think tank which has termed the the very word permacrisis, and uh, we, have, uh, we have adopted it. And uh, I think that you as a think tank, you have probably invested quite a lot of effort, you know, into thinking about the future, you know, what would this well-being well economy look like? What are the components? components? Um, how can it actually work? Because it's quite different from what we know so far. Please, Elizabeth. Well, thanks, uh, Matthias. I think you said it very well. We are, as a Brussels-based think tank, very much involved, especially in a time where a lot is said about at Zeitenwende and the fact that at European level we need to be thinking about where are we heading as a European Union. And given the fact that I'm leading the Social Europe and Wellbeing program, it is very much in my remit to think about how do we do that. Because I'm very encouraged to see also these last couple of days that here in Gastein there is a lot of support for the wellbeing economy. I think it's a very positive agenda which is needed in times of a declining trust in democracies. I think it's a protective agenda, which is really important if you think about the fact that last summer we all witnessed climate crisis leading to more health inequalities. Um, if you think about the fact that the cost of living and the energy crisis is really leading to more inequalities, another word that we have heard a lot here in Gastein, which really also has an impact on health, it shows you how important the economy of well-being is. However, and that is going to be my plea and my takeaway for today in light of the 24 elections, we really need to move beyond the concept. And we really need to think, how can it be that worldwide we have the so-called well-being economy governance? It's the so-called WIGO coalition. It's Australia, Canada, it's Wales, Scotland, Finland, as we heard the other day. But we really need to put our money where our mouth is. And I think a crucial link is to think about what does it mean for our definition of growth? Uh, because if we do not consider what it means in terms of how do we economically perceive this agenda, it will remain an issue that stays in like-minded communities like we're sitting here today and, and does not probably move the needle. And I think that shows you that paradigm shifts take time. It was in 2006, so quite a time ago, the Finnish presidency that started speaking about health in all policies to broaden the conversation. Then in 2019, it was 
again, the Finnish presidency that started speaking about the well-being economy. But sometimes it makes me a bit cynical if then in Brussels you start speaking to also other incoming presidencies and say, well, there is an agenda. Why aren't you working on it? And then they say, yeah, it's a bit of a luxury. You know, we, we, we are in a time of Burma crisis again, a financial crisis looming, energy crisis, cost of living. So we don't have time yet. And I think that is a really wrong assumption. This is time to act. And I think especially in light of the 2004 elections, my take away would be we need to act and speak with one voice. Because we have seen, as Kunigonde pointed out, that we can make a difference, but we need to do that together. I come back to you in a second, but can I go and, and, and put a question to you, Kunigonde and uh, Susanne? When Elizabeth is talking about the limited relevance of growth, are you getting cold feet or are your shareholders getting, getting cold feet? I mean, in the, late, in the end, you have a business model and uh, you probably hope that you have a very profitable uh, enterprise and uh, growth is one component in it. So how do you feel about people talking about growth, questioning the relevance of growth in the well-being economy? Yeah, I think, well, if ill people cannot contribute to a, um, a, healthy, a healthy economy, and we see that also in our companies, we've seen that during the, um, the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, mental health issues, um, people are not able to work anymore, so that has an enormous impact on, um, on, on their well-being, but also on the economic growth. So there is a clear link also for us, interesting to make sure that uh, we have healthy people on the planet who can contribute and, and yeah, uh, deliver all their um, strength in yeah. building that, okay. that economy. Zana, very briefly. I, I totally agree. There is a clear link between GDP and well-being of people. Yeah. And Elizabeth, briefly back to you. you. I mean, this is a coalition and uh, advocacy is, is key. What do you do concretely to, to advance the case, the course of the, of the coalition? Well, as the European Policy Centre, we are quite strong in bringing together multi-stakeholder coalitions. So we have two concrete projects. One on the European Health Union, where, of course, together also with our colleagues, uh, together here today from the Gastein Initiative on uh, the European Health Union, are working on how do we present a really concrete agenda with concrete recommendations in light of the 24 elections. But we're also setting up what we call a well-being policy lab. And that is exactly back to the point that we need to go beyond speaking about the concept of well-being and we need to start about implementation. And that's why we call it a policy lab to make that happen. Okay, thank you so much. And that's the moment to turn to uh, Vesna. And I can see from your body language that you have a couple of issues and you want to bring them to the forefront. So please, Vesna, feel free. Yes, first of all, I would want to... Uh, micro. Yes, First of all, I would want to know who is in the room. So I would ask who of you is coming from the civil society? Okay, plenty of them. And from the industry? And the member states? Oh, wow. Uh, okay, uh, so uh, let me be uh, clear. What was to be proven? <laughs> <laughs> let me be clear about uh, you know that uh, first of all, I would want to start with that COVID has really shown us that we are all uh, together in this. You know, so we have to find the ways of working. But you know, and I'm really pleased when you are speaking of equity and you know. Uh, the growth uh, the, and healthy people contributing to growth, 
but here I am a little bit skeptic what you are talking about, you know, because having healthy people who are, of course, more productive and can work more, it's not well-being, you know. This is not about well-being. So well-being is investing in many other things, uh, not just in health for being more productive. So that is one thing. The other thing is that I think sometimes we are confused about the roles. If we are all in this, we have to understand what our roles are in uh, the, of governments, of the industry, and the civil society. For example, the role of industry, and you were speaking of business models and so on, you know, it's a development, you know. Of course, you are after profits, and it's good that you think of people too, and, you know, contribution of the industry. That is fine with me. But uh, you are not the ones who are responsible for health of people. Uh, you should do your work, and you are doing it. It's us member states. You know, represent, I mean, the governments, governments, I speak in governments, not member states, and uh, uh, us within the Commission and WHO, we should think of, you know, nobody left behind. We are mentioning this so many times, and I'm wondering, but do you really know what this isn't is? Isn't there large, large variations in how, how uh, individual actors assume the roles? I think uh, on a former member of the European Union, the government strongly believes in inequity and uh, uneven growth, you know? Well, we have values. We do have values, and values that one of the values is health, but there is also solidarity there, and equity, and you mentioned it. But I still, I want to go into, into the roles, because otherwise we are stuck with all this big wording, and nobody really knows where, you know, they should do what, you know? Mm -hmm. You should keep doing your thing, you know, and we, the governments, we have this, this uh, important role to make sure that within the society there is equity, that people get what they need uh, when uh, they, uh, they are sick, and that we also invest in prevention. That is on us. It's our decisions. And you can give us mm -hmm. a hand here with all the technology, as you mentioned. You were speaking of the workforce, you know. That is only one aspect. And it's there, and we should use it better. The governments, this is our responsibility. We should work with you in this aspect. But still, the workforce as such, you know, it's a problem. And some people from health sector are going to the pharmaceutical industry. And that is also another problem, for example. But then the third, the third pillar here is the civil society. And they have a very specific role in all of this. They are the ones who really understand the needs of vulnerable populations. We in health sector have difficulty to step out mm -hmm. and reach out and really understand the needs of vulnerable. They do. They work with specific groups, and they are the ones who can bring this information to us. But not only this. But this is only one thing. But the are they always is, heard? Do we always listen to them, you know? And do yeah, we support exactly them sufficiently, I, that, sufficiently that, is, that they can do this role? Well, I, uh, I would ask you to give me some time, because I was listening <laughs> really carefully, you know, very. Yeah, but you are interrupting me all the time. Yes. I want to say something. You allowed other people to talk, so please. Uh, civil society also maybe will need to talk. So let them talk and let me talk too. The, what I want to say is that their role is very often neglected by us governments. We are asked to invest in you, in you, the industry also, you know, to support you when you are looking for the development. So, but very seldom we understand that huge investments need to be done for the civil society. 
we, we have to invest financially and we have to uh, empower them to do the job as it should be done. Not just be critical what they are doing. We have to make them work hand in hand with professionals, you know, to first identify the needs but also address them appropriately. Because we have all, you know, that, that we have people and patients who don't even know where to go for health. And, and they don't get the medication right because they are not capable of understanding uh, what doctors are telling them. But we also have uh, patient organizations which are there and could help. But we have to invest in these organizations. And I, I think when we are discussing the different roles, things become more clear. If we are just speaking, oh, equity is important, well-being is important, these are just words. They don't tell you exactly what to do. So I'm here to say that at the level of European Commission and in the member states, we should better understand that investments are needed in civil society organizations in the health sector, you know, for them to work better to make sure that there will be more money for high tech because we will prevent things that could be prevented and not be stuck with lots of patients in health sector, you know, that should not be there, you know, and I'm speaking of diabetes and I'm speaking of all the rest. And you should be there to develop things okay. for those things that cannot be yet prevented. Yeah. You know, that yeah. is where I see so the real focus should be. Yeah. And here we have no, another no. element actually of the well-being uh, economy. We are talking about investment and also that we need to talk about priorities, you know, in what we really want to invest. And to discuss all this, we have now actually an interactive phase. We have here six tables and online two tables. And um, two tables each have the same question. And I think you have a rapporteur at, at all of your, uh, I see nodding faces. Yes, they are from the younger Steiners, I, I guess. And um, we will also ask our panelists here to join the tables for a phase of 20, roughly 25 uh, minutes so that you discuss the question which is put on the table and um, come up with a couple of comments and uh, feedback for the plenary session afterwards. So please, go and join your groups and I will run around a little bit to see how it goes. Okay. <clears throat> Colleagues, uh, time to feed back to the plenary. I hope you had an interesting uh, discussion. <clears throat> the questions were meant to be a starting point, actually, and probably you had your own questions or you came to answers which are not always 100% fit, but don't worry about this. The way... Cuckoo! Hello! <laughs> the way we run the feedback session is we go question by question and um, we look at the answers you provided and then we ask the rapporteurs or people from your table maybe to clarify if there are questions. We will probably not be uh, in the position we don't have enough time to go in all of the questions in much detail and some of the questions were actually um, uh, survey questions so that might be a little bit um, quicker but please engage in the explanation and we will also get the feedback not only from the tables here but also from the online groups. Julia can we start with the first question please? So, addressing obstacles in the improvement of citizens' health and well-being of in Europe? Well, in Europe. <laughs> Please, go. Show us the results. Okay, the first one was a survey, a poll. And what are the major obstacles on current and future care pathways? Social inequalities. 
lack of adequate policies, digital and health illiteracy, disinformation and distrust, vaccine hesitancy. Um, can, I, can I ask somebody here from the civil society, actually? Where is, is Milka here? Or uh, you, you are here exactly from IFA. I mean, you are somebody who's, uh, can we have the microphone? And please introduce yourself. Are you? Okay. <coughs> Does it work? Yeah. Is that? Are you a bit? Um, are you a bit surprised about these uh, hey, results? Yes. Um, well, I think our answer is not there because the the obstacle that we identified was actually that we didn't have a clear definition of this well-being economy. So we were, we had the feeling that we were discussing something that we didn't really understood. But also, can I also make the op take the opportunity to say yes, something? Yes, please. Because I think Vesna made some very important points about the roles of the different stakeholders. And I think in my mind, what would help very much for the trust in the different in institutions, but also in the private sector, is some transparency. So for example, this session, who exactly paid for this session? Or how did the agenda setting happen? You know, how, did the, how were the decisions made? Were the, was the EU absorb uh, observatory involved in the decisions? We now have a multi-stakeholder workshop. Will the results be? Published? I hope not, because I didn't take a box <laughs> to agree on it. So just a point that I wanted to raise. Okay, it was a bit of metacritic, wasn't it? So uh, <laughs> no, I, I hope it's a constructive. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, anybody else who wants to um, uh, uh, comment on um, this force? Is it changing all the time, actually? Okay. Are these are these the final results now? Okay. So social inequalities have been considered the most important obstacle. Joseph, no meta discussion. I, I, better, I better keep the microphone. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> please, please. No, we were talking, right, or maybe you're going to report that, that we felt that the digital and health literacy were two separate things. Okay. And I think pulling them together is, 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 the, is the wrong signal to give, because health literacy is related with many other aspects. And digital literacy being very important is a, is, a, is a different thing, even digital health literacy. Trying to pull health literacy and the digital is a mistake for the developments we want in digital as well. Thank you so much. But uh, what would you, you comment on the, that social inequalities are here the, seen as the main obstacles? Please. In our group, we started with these social inequalities, but then we thought that uh, like a really very major problem uh, based on which other problems appear are the lack of adequate policy. So in our group, number one major obstacle uh, is uh, inadequate policies. Okay, thanks a lot. Can we have the next uh, answer, next question? Yes, okay. What role can the EU industry and civil society play in addressing these problems. Creation of a space to be heard, have all stakeholders involved as a continuum, not just as a start. Co-design is not done well due to lack of follow-up. What, what would this be in concrete terms? Is it like a forum or something like this? Or is it, uh, uh, anybody uh, wants to speak for it? Who, which, which group? Uh, yeah, it was the online group. Yeah, so I think that was the creation of where, where all stakeholders could be involved and okay. be heard. So. But uh, which st stakeholders beyond health or is it? Yeah, okay, health. good. Yeah. 
Next answer was the EU ought to ensure supportive and sustainable policies along with education opportunities, empowering people to make health decisions leading to strong individual awareness. And so, well, that's a long sentence, actually. <laughs> and the next one is not shorter, is it? <laughs> Industry must focus on accessibility and community approach, investing into health priority. Wow, um, it's also a little bit actually like a Christmas tree, you know, there's, uh, it, it reminds me of a WHO committee, you know, when all stakeholders try to bring in their, their particular view and afterwards nobody understands actually what's it about it because there are so many things, but I think I, think I get the principle here, it's really about the EU and uh, the policy making and we need to have an intersectoral policy which is really defined by all the other sectors. Can you scroll down, Julia? There's no more, then we go to the next question, please. <laughs> Could current crisis trigger new citizens' behavior detrimental to health? And I think uh, we have actually seen, unfortunately, some of those uh, behaviors uh, during the crisis already. We've seen the increase in mental issues in alcohol consumption. Uh, and, and things like this. I don't, I don't think we need to go much into, into more, more detail here. Can we have the next one, please? Um, how can the EU ensure citizens make healthy decisions and arbitrations in the current inflation and energy crisis? Group one, topic one, too optimistic, but can you... <laughs> you can contribute through participatory approach, including different stakeholders, but um, does it pay the gas bill, not quite. <laughs> uh, wording support instead of ensure. So how can the EU in, uh, support through closer, oh, can you go back? Oh, it's still there. Closer collaboration with patient associations, explicit well-being outcomes with relevant horizon call across sectors, promote sustainable choice through information and solution empowerment, empowerment citizens. Well, there's a lot of um, citizen civil society uh, in it and also uh, professional associations ensuring policies focusing on the health and EU collaboration. I think it's very often very difficult actually um, to connect with the EU for professional associations, you know, because uh, they consider their major space actually in the, in the member states and then of course they sometimes have representations here, but are they really heard sufficiently, do they have to offer? I think it's more the member states which are talking to the, to the Commission. Ensuring policies focusing on the health and EU collaboration, enabling and empowering people. It sounds good. Who, who wrote this, can I ask? Uh, can you explain a little bit? Because uh, it sounds really good, but what is it, uh, how, how, how would you see that happening? Sure. Um, does anyone want to speak or is it? Go ahead. I think a point that was uh, discussed in our group, and that is also uh, close to my heart and area of work uh, specifically, is the way I thought some of the questions were framed in a way that put responsibility for healthy decision very strongly on the individual level and took individuals in mind. But well, I, I come my my core area of work is health literacy, and we know in health literacy that the amount to which people can make health literate, health literate decisions depends at least as much on the surrounding structures and the conditions under which they make these decisions. So, for example, to what extent is reliable information, understandable information accessible for people? To what extent are participatory decisions in healthcare 
being made possible by healthcare providers? Um, are, is the whole healthcare system designed in a way that is understandable and accessible for people? And the same goes for many other areas because we all know that health is something that is that is sort of produced in all policy areas. And I think it would be important. I, I strongly support the the remark uh, that's Leonard in second here, wording support instead of ensure. Ensure sounds to me condescending, like we know better what's good for you, so please go and do it. And I think it would be important, I think that's also because why our group decided to put uh, the social inequalities and lack of adequate policies first in the first question, because um, the other three points seem to place the burden on the personal level alone. And I think so it's important not to keep in mind that I think this is distorting the way things work. So the support from the EU should entail um, changing the settings through regulation, maybe sometimes through law, um, making sure that the infrastructure is there in which better decisions can actually be taken. Yeah, and of course this goes, goes out also for decisions that are being made under the current con conditions of crisis. I mean, to make healthy decisions under the conditions of an energy crisis. I mean, if you don't have money to, to heat your flat, it will go to mold. And that's not, not a bad, healthy decision you've taken, it's just... Yes, but we also had the, the, the discussion uh, the other day on mental health of young people and adolescents, and we saw that there's an underinvestment in these services and a large backlog, and we cannot deal, and that would actually help quite, quite a lot to address these, these issues. And, and it's not just a lack <laughs> of uh, psychotherapy or something, it's also a lack of considering the needs of children yeah. and young okay. adults at all. Thanks. Well, I could go on. I, I know, I know, I can see that. See. <laughs> Thank you so the much. The main point is see the structural side of it too. Very good. Thank you so much. Please, the next question. Ha. It's still the same, isn't it? Okay, number two, very good. Transforming well-being outcomes into a measure of success in all EU policymaking. We had quite some discussion here. There are some composite um, measures actually available, which ones are the, the better ones. But of course, uh, when we talk about individual policies, you know, we want to see what individual policies can achieve. So um, first one here is time frame to see the outcomes persuasive arguments, collaboration between sectors, short-term planning. I think we had a discussion that very often the information we are getting is not really timely. We had a demonstration here from Finland where they had almost uh, the same day uh, information on um, unemployment, you know, how many people are unemployed. And we had another day the presentation from WHO where they told us, oh, the data we have published is two years old and not very accurate because the member states don't give us better and more timely data. So I think that's really still timeliness and accuracy, I think is still really an, an issue here. Agreeing on what well-being means. Well, we are on the road. We are not quite there yet, apparently, you know, but um, that would be really uh, important. Agreeing what to measure. Good. So this is rather a kind of... Um, suggestion how we get there, then really answering um, uh, what we should do. And then the next, can you scroll down, please? GDP as a measure, powerful stakeholders are not yet on board, even those that are sympathetic. Can, can somebody explain these uh, comments from the groups? Uh, you're laughing, it's probably you. <laughs> Uh, yes, so uh, I hope I have captured what our group has discussed. So please feel free to add on. Yeah, but we started with the um, 
just thought that, yeah, because GDP is a measure, that's an obstacle, then that there are very powerful stakeholders in this debate that are not yet convinced of the economy of well-being, but then those even that are convinced, um, there is a gap between agreeing to this and saying we do support the economy of well-being, but actually implementing it in real terms. And I think one major yeah. issue also is the lack of evidence, because even if you make a suggestion, uh, you cannot prove that it will work. Yeah. That is one of the key problems of health in all policies. Almost everybody is saying health, yeah, it's very important and all policies should do something about it. And the other sectors say, yes, it's great. But in the end, not much is actually happening. And that is why Scott Greer and others are actually suggesting health for all policies. What can health and health sector do for the other sectors? But that's a topic we can explore a little bit later. Please, can you scroll down or is it the last one? No, okay, next one. Is the current geopolitical context helping or impairing this? Helping? How is it helping? We just heard here uh, gas prices uh, is, uh, is killing everybody. Okay, you have an explanation for this one. I have to say, we were also, I was also surprised, but the members uh, in our group said quickly helping because it's an opportunity. Basically, it is an opportunity to bring this to the forefront if we explain it right, if we make sure that it remains a priority for the decision makers. But uh, c can I ask you back? I mean, uh, we are talking about the perma crisis, you know, from a health crisis, we merge into a, a social crisis, we know in a security crisis, uh, whatsoever. So it will be crisis with us for the next two years or something like this will still be helping as a window of opportunity? Uh, I, I, think, I think it's, it's fair to say, and I think everyone could agree here, that if we don't prepare and, if, and building a, a well-being society, society that puts well-being of uh, you know, citizens, planet, and biodiversity first, is building resilience in the end. So you have to explain this to the, to the decision makers who are probably having to you know, confront an immediate crisis that if you don't do that work now, you will, have just, you, will do, you will stay in that perma-crisis state. Or is it maybe that it dawns on many people that we are not going back to the old model? You have probably a very clear idea about it, Vesna. I'll be very short. What you are talking about is should be helping. Should. It's not helping because it's not helping. The inequities will be bigger. Exactly. And they already are growing. But it should be helping because it w should wake up all of us. Thank you so much, uh, Vesna. Can we have the next question, please? Should policies be expected to achieve a well-being net positive in light of the current economic recession and uncertain geopolitical landscapes? And how? Need to be careful to maintain equity at least need accountability to understand the impact of policies on health and well-being, need the data, but we should start somewhere and improve measurements as we go, need political impetus to set it up. Okay, there's a lot of need. I think some of it um, reflects that there also needs to be a different governance, you know, so um, if, we, if, we, if we need, to if we need the, the data to make the judgments, actually, to discuss the data, to make decisions on them. So how do we make these decisions? So I think that points a little bit into this uh, governance uh, direction. And the next one is, yes, linking health promotion topics to the energy policies that will be needed. So um, doing a workout at home to feel warm. Who, who, who wrote this? <laughs> Which group? Uh, you, you again. <laughs> But I'm not in a good position to explain it. So 
Yeah, I'm not sure whether I'm in a better position, but uh, what I wanted to express is that right now everybody sees the necessity to change the way we are getting energy. And so, for example, in Austria, I think there will be uh, quite a lot of uh, wind wheels that will be built, which would have taken years now. So on the other hand, there are carbon plants that uh, started to run again short, on the short hand. But uh, in midterm, there will be a change in energy, energy policies. And so we should link this topic of health promotion now with, with the agenda of climate change people. I think this is really a, a window of opportunity. And I'm not sure that everybody in, in this uh, community already sees this link between health and environment. Thank you so much. Um, can we have the next question, please? Can this be a tool for incentivizing prevention of health threats? I think these questions have been too simple. <laughs> and there's far too much um, consensus on it. That doesn't uh, give us uh, much, much food for, uh, for a debate. Please, the next one. Three, yes, please, three. Regional disparities in Europe and the challenges this poses when addressing well-being as a unit. I mean, they, they have not been diminished, the uh, disparities in Europe, and we have a lot of uh, candidate countries that will add to the disparities we have in Europe. Um, please. Which barriers exist in health infrastructure, culture, inequality, etc.? Existing cross-border issues, unequal care, different rural areas. It's a, it's a long list here, actually. You know, uh, it's a daunting long list. You get really worried. Uh, can we actually address all all of this? Better use of national contact points to improve info to citizens, health workforce issues. We are different in many areas, especially in the health workforce. Who said this? Yes, please. Can you explain a little bit? Hi. Um, so we had a small online group. Actually, we were mostly uh, health professionals there, so that's why we focus on the health workforce. And I think what we meant here is, um, well, the skills for starters uh, are very different among the countries and also the actual approach to care, you know, the responsibilities of the nurses, of the doctors. Um, it's, it's really not aligned. And in a way, we all start from different points and um, to address the disparities, we have to work with the skills. So that is one of the issues which came up throughout the meeting here, actually, that we need to have a common skills agenda and that we need to make these uh, skills also much more portable, or that it's clear who's got what skills. And we probably um, allow um, cross-border mobility, not so much with regards to the profession itself, but to the skills of the health workers. Last one is inequality in marginalized communities is a serious problem, much more to discuss, but didn't have the time. So I give you a minute. Who said this? It was you. Yeah. Please. I'm not sure I'm the best to uh, <laughs> to reflect the discussion, but uh, basically, we um, when we quickly uh, glossed over the first question, um, the first point that was raised was uh, that uh, a lot of the care um, that we currently provide is, is focused on acute care, something that is a re recurring theme uh, at this conference, I think, <laughs> um, and that uh, a lot of um, a lot of marginalised communities, as you mentioned, um, has been so 
well represented by the uh, Nobody Left Outside um, sessions, uh, which have taken place over the past two days, um, are possibly low-hanging fruit where we can really improve the well-being of, uh, of people who really need it most. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question, please. Which stakeholders are most relevant in addressing this? Um, all of them, okay. <laughs> Civil society, industry, government, regional and local authority, health workforce. Member states should, be, should not be underestimated. Civil society can be mobilized to activate existing networks. I would like to have somebody from the second um, response and the third. Who, who was the second response, which group? It's uh, the online. I can see that. That that was us again. Obviously, uh, um, we had actually uh, doctors and nurses in the group, so <laughs> you know it was uh, the agenda was there for sure. Uh, but yes, I mean um, we looked at the, the the disparities between the countries, and we thought that you need to start with the health workforce. But why with the health health workforce? Do you mean like, for example, in countries where the where the salaries are lower, that you invest in the salaries and uh, um, get closer to other countries or no we and I, I think we're going to elaborate on that in the next questions actually okay. um, that it was more about the skills development once again and uh, yeah okay thank you and um, the group with a third question you again anyone else please yeah, I think the main point that one of our uh, colleagues here pointed out was that there actually is a lot of um, ways for us to learn how to do it because there's a Healthier Together uh, a document published the 22nd of June, I think, which would outline uh, ways for member states to implement a more, uh, more just ways of doing a, a health policy, which is sort of like um, what we learned is more or less being ignored. So it's not, of, it's not that much an issue of being communicated, but it's more an issue of listening to what's actually there. So we don't really need to sort of um, find out in ways in how we can be more uh, inclusive, but we, we, we would just need to listen to what's already there. Okay, thank you so much. So taking stock, uh, because civil society and other organizations have already worked on policies and issues and may help uh, addressing it. That's, that's the argument, yeah. Please, next question. Where can EU policies and funds be best utilized to address these? Cohesion towards a truly united approach, better use of existing funding, platform for all stakeholders to come together and discuss, better use of existing ones and accountabilities in terms of listening of the platform discussion outcomes, civil society support. So it's a bit repetitive. The, the, the answers uh, are similar to, to previous. Skills development among the workforce referred to WHO report on workforce planning. I can guess from which group this one came. Skill building and focusing on healthy environment. Communication is key. Existing schemes such as the Healthier Together initiatives which communicates best practices with member states is an example of a tool which works well and can be expanded. Would somebody like to comment on this, on the third one? Which group was it? Okay, 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 fine. Next question, please. How can the, EU, the European Health Union be expanded beyond crisis response? How can it be utilized to encourage collaboration and sharing between countries? So the question here is really how do we get to a true European Health Union? Use a push, use a push to listen to all stakeholders and as a driver of cohesion, 
well, actually, this would be the moment where you could do bullet points, you know, and say what you really want, you know, and, uh, but you want to listen, first of all. A common project to bring every stakeholder together to deliver concrete results. But haven't we come together for years and years that we actually know what we, what we, what we want? Sub subsidiarity is a barrier, but there's a clear need for collaboration beyond COVID-19. So I think that is a very important uh, topic because it's a constitutional issue and uh, many people here in the room will probably say they don't fully understand what it actually means, subsidiarity, having so diverse member states in, a, in the European Union and uh, it's not really helpful as an argument to stop um, community um, action. Um, the change has already occurred since 10 years ago, but we expect more support for more collaboration in the coming years. Would somebody like to um, comment on this and explain this a little bit? Which group was it? It was your group. <laughs> um, well, we reflected a bit on the, the concept of the European Health Union and how, you know, just 10 years ago, there wasn't really, a, well, there, there, were, there were talks about it, but it was very um, sort of something that could happen, but now we're sitting here and actually discussing a plan on how to make it happen. So we felt that we've come a long way already and we felt that it will mm. only increase in the future. Yeah. Actually, the subsidiarity issue, Sandra Galina yesterday at the book launch, she said, yeah, 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 look at the treaties, but the treaties should not prevent you from doing what is the spirit actually of the treaties and European uh, Union. There's already a lot of existing collaboration in place, but doesn't necessarily take the form of formal legislation, instead a lot of soft initiatives in disseminating information are key. That's interesting. Which group was that? Okay, please. Can you uh, elaborate a little bit? But I, think, I think we keep circling around to the same point. We had basically one key discussion here was that um, that a lot of the, 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 the initiatives to disseminate information through existing networks is maybe underexploited. Um, and so uh, the summary that I drew from the conclusion that I came to from that was that um, that maybe when we're talking about uh, European Health Union and we, we're, we're talking about how, what the, what action the European Commission should take, um, we, we, we usually um, uh, we, t we tend not to focus on um, softer initiatives. We're looking at the, you know, the hard legislation um, and, and the things that uh, result in, in new laws, but we're, we're forgetting maybe a lot of the work that the, that the European Commission is doing to facilitate uh, the sharing of best practices and bringing member states together to actually um, work together and just, and just share um, key tools and best practices to uh, improve well-being for citizens. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, next question, please. How can local communities, regional governance be best utilized? Collection of data to better understand needs and react accordingly. I think that is a theme which we had throughout the, the whole, whole session that we need to have better data, better access, but not just the data, we need to have the expert that can interpret the data and also the governance linkage so that the data is not just floating around in the scientific uh, sphere, but that it is really uh, linked to politicians or decision-making and uh, accountability. Dealing with issues at the local level, local action, need more support to local regions to develop skills, programs and attract um, people. Um, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit when shifting the focus to well-being from acute care. Once again, communication has proven key in this. We need to improve and build on this. It's again communication, but there must be other uh, low-hanging uh, fruits. Can somebody say, it's, it's again your table here? 
What, 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 what would they be the low hanging fruit concretely, not just uh, communication? Yeah, the idea behind that was that sort of like the uh, client focus right now is often on more of well-off being individuals and sort of like approaching people who are already in a good um, uh, environment and therefore have uh, less of a challenge to be uh, healthy. And sort of this low-hanging fruit is approaching this group. Instead, their uh, uh, client focus should be shifted towards people with lower life expectancy, which might not be as popular right now and maybe might not be as uh, sort of like a politically interesting thing in the current environment in a lot of countries, but that would be more of a sort of the idea of the low-hanging fruit. Thank you so much. So it means a little bit, uh, it means more investing in primary health care, community-based care, and also reaching out to hard-to-reach group. Vesna. I will be very short. The local communities are actual places where things happen. Mm -hmm. There is where we can assure environment for people to make healthy choices. And this is very important. But you know, there are some investments needed at the local level. And it's much easier if there is our data available locally. We have this national data which don't resonate at local level to the politicians there. And that is why the first sentence is so important. And you are very much right. There needs to be someone to interpret data. But we have na national public health mm. institutes, and they should have regional uh, offices, and they should uh, work at the local level with the local authorities and do uh, make data understandable to the local decision makers. That is how it should work. And it's clearly a case for investment, actually, in health and health uh, system. Next question, please. We are done with the questions. So uh, thank you so much. I know that some of the questions were maybe a little bit suboptimal, but uh, they were meant to get the discussion actually going, you know, and to um, produce a couple of uh, good ideas about the uh, European Health Union. Can I ask um, the panelists again? Are we, for the moment, you can stay at the table and I, I just go around. Kunigunda, I go to you as the last one and then we have a quick um, intervention from Vitenis. Please, you've been at one on the table and you made a strong statement and uh, the economy of well-being is one of your, your babies. Uh, what did you get out of the discussion? Well, I think that it needs wider consensus is needed. It's not so much that Evidence is, is lacking. I mean, uh, more data would be important to make the case. I think also another point is that perhaps indicators at European level would be helpful because we know that as indicators in the context of the European semester, now for the recovery and resilience funds. But if these would be combined so that, again, they trickle down to the national level where indeed finance ministers with their health colleagues and our, env our environmental colleagues will discuss the impact um, at national level, I think that is very uh, important. So it's about wider consensus and implementation, because again, we have a lot of evidence, but it's really, again, about implementation, especially at national level, where all the stakeholders that are today here also are having their role. So it's really about governance, NGO, industry, uh, think tanks, academia. It's really about speaking with one voice, because only then you get that paradigm shift. Yes, wider consensus is certainly important, but isn't isn't time running for us at the moment, you know, that uh, we are running out of time actually and implementation, as you say, would be uh, quite, quite uh, important very soon. Please, Susanna. Oh, I think that, does it work? No. I take the mic. 
better. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, at our table um, we had really good discussions and the word education was mentioned several times. Um, I think that's where it starts, right? So we were looking at policies, social, digital and health, disinformation, vaccines. Isn't it all linked to education? Uh, I think if, and we said everyone plays a role. Um, in, in that construct, we need to make sure we educate all together and agree on, let's call it, really good marketing campaigns to, to inform and educate properly on health and on uh, how to use uh, you know, digital applications, digital world, social media. Uh, we also agreed that it's maybe not a good idea to monitor and limit what it is there. We never will you know, be able to do that, but we need to make sure people, citizens, know where to really get the right information to be informed well. Okay, thank you. So education, training, information. But I think, um, you know, to well, one, of the, one of the homeworks I would take home from this uh, um, uh, workshop today is that we really need to be very concrete. What are the next steps? What are the next, the next uh, investments, actually? I think that to understand what the well-being economy actually is, we need to focus and we need to say, we allocate money here, and I think you know that is then where our values actually are. So, Vesna, please. Uh, what I heard from the discussion is uh, wake up. You know, that is one thing. So there's no time to uh, no. to talk, talk, talk. We have to wake up, and we have to make sure that uh, not only we are all aligned, because we will never be aligned if we don't know where we want to go. So the goal, the, the you know, the destination, the vision we have to discuss and we have to have it because I don't think uh, just speaking of equity is not good enough. What are we thinking of when we are saying equity? We have to be very clear here. And I have written something so I have to put the glasses on to see what I have uh, thought of. Uh, and then of course we have to, we have to uh, make sure not only about where we want to go, but we have to discuss, we have to have a platform you know, where we will be very clear who does what. You know, because otherwise, if we are left with only the vision, we'll do the wrong things. We have to know exactly who does what, and then it will be very clear where investments should go. You know, and this platform, I think it should be at the level of EU, but the last thing, very important, is we need benchmarking. We need then to measure if we are going in a certain direction. In Slovenia, we have a national development policy. The first goal is better health, and the, the, uh, how we are going to measure this is somebody put it on health years of uh, you know, life. You know? so, uh, uh, that is something we need to do, because otherwise we'll do nothing. In 10 years, we'll be where we are now. So that, that's very clear for things, actually. Policy, we need to uh, have the um, performance measurement, we need the governance, and we need the money, actually. Kunigunde, last word before. Yeah, thank you that I have the last word. But I think, Vesna, you, you concluded in, in a very good way. And I think that is the reason why all policies for Health Europe coalition, the cross-sector coalition, to work together at regional, national, local level, intersectorial. Um, so I don't want to add more words because it would do not right to what you just said. So um, this platform coalition is there to brainstorm and to think of it. We have a lot of tangible 
uh, areas that now have been put on the table. So the coalition and the working groups who are in fact working on environment and, uh, and, and, and health, on digital, on the economy of well-being, we will come together and, and brainstorm on that and then check with people like you, Vesna, and discuss how can the European Health Union then be have a better role in assess all this. Thank you so much, uh, Kunigunde. Now I have the immense pleasure to give the floor to Vitenis. Vitenis Andrikaitis, everybody knows him. He was Minister of Health, he was a European Commissioner, a fine academic and an activist, and he's the driving force between the true European Health Union, a health union which goes beyond crisis prevention and response. The floor is all your Vitenis. Six Thank minutes. Thank you, Matthias. I am very happy to be here <coughs> after, you know, long period because of uh, COVID break and now we can see each other. It's very, very inspiring meeting. Thanks a lot for all of you. And let me remind you, old definition of health, very old, 1949. Health is a state of complete physical, mental and social well-being. And not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. When we are speaking of health and well-being, we need to act together, addressing all cross-border issues, addressing health in all policies. That is very difficult. <coughs> yes, health and well-being have long been central of European way of life. After Second World War, EU, uh, uh, those, you know, fathers of, of founding fathers decided to build what? Peace. Because peace is about health, about well-being. And now we have in Europe, once again, war. New generations, up to you to discuss a little bit about such very difficult situation which is now. Since the early spring of 2020, health has received unprecedented media coverage and has dominated national and international debates. I remember when I was commissioner and we started to you know, organize a vac global vaccine summit. It was so difficult. And now, when COVID was here in our home, all started to speak about vaccination. And of course, vaccine hesitancy and so on, it means that consequently support for a European Health Union, in which all 27 countries prepare and respond to health crisis together, has increased. And I am very happy about it. Uh, this has played into a wider shift on how we define economic and social goals. The old GDP center model, uh, which revolved around the free, free movement of good, people and capital, is giving way to a human-centric approach and puts citizens' health and well-being at, at the core of government policy. We need now to have new GDP formula. No GDP formula was built in 1979. It's old formula. We need to go beyond and we need to include human capital. We need to include well-being indicators. We need to do something real. It's up to scientists, up to politicians, and up to all of us to think about it. Uh, um, Vice President, you know, um, the, of the European Commission, Margaret Schinas, said in his address at our flagship event in June, the European Health Union is not a slogan. It is an emerging tangible reality. And I agree. 
In many ways, challenges we currently face have brought it ever closer. From the war in Ukraine to the accelerating climate emergency to the looming energy shortages and food crisis, and the importance of advancing public well-being has never been greater. And we can send this message in all 27, uh, across all 27 countries. Now we need to work together to strengthen EU-level governance. For me, it's crystal clear. We need to strengthen treaties, absolutely. It's for me, personally. Of public health and well-being to drive sustainable, balanced, and inclusive development for a resilient Europe, and to promote cross-sectorial collaboration for a health in all policies approach at the core of EU policy making. And now we have very fragmented, fragmented societies, and they see fighting, some groups fighting others, you know, it's, and you can listen here also some, something. Civil uh, NGOs are not uh, ready to, 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 to have dialogue with uh, industry indices, not ready to have a dialogue. Time is over. We need to understand collaboration. Collaboration, once again, because it's a fight each other way nothing. On the basis, basic level and member states and you level healthcare systems centered on people, innovation, and value-based care will ensure that European health is better protected and that our healthcare system are performed and resilient against future cross-border health threats. We have 27 different healthcare systems with different regulatory frames, with jungles in our laws in, 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 in all 27 member states. We need to harmonize our work between different member states. This is a very difficult job. But a strong uh, uh, European experience will also protect our economies, societies, and <coughs> environment. And Green Deal can help us also to do the same. A healthy and physically active workforce is crucial for economic productivity. According to the WHO, for every 10% increase in NCDs mortality, there is a 0.05 reduction in our economic growth. But when we are speaking about well-being, it's much more, much more picture looming. Uh, similarly, the total cost of mental ill health ac uh, account for over 600 billion euros, or more than 4% of GDP per year across the 27 uh, countries. To this end, I welcome President von der Leyen's commitment to improving efforts to support mental health across Europe during this year State of the Union address. Yes, because after COVID, we see how is, you know, how COVID affected uh, uh, people's mental situations. And uh, moreover, in the 21st century, we have seen an increased outbreak of zoonotic diseases and so on and so on. And my final words, I know that time is running, but are very simple. Now it's time to act. We have new election period 2024, we have a lot of ambassadors here in this room. Please raise, you know, questions of health, European Health Union very high on the agenda, and please improve our efforts to do more, our voice to be heard at all levels, at Council of Heads of Governments, at European Commission and National Council, and at local authorities also. Thank you, colleagues. Thank you so much, Vitainis. That's really great. I think
with your enthusiasm, we, we will uh, make it, and I'm very confident now. Thank you so much. And um, I hope you enjoyed a little bit this exercise and also the interactivity. Of course, uh, uh, if you don't uh, formulate the question yourself, you probably have other questions, but uh, there were still a couple of answers which are in interesting. But I think it's very clear from me that we need to be very concrete, you know, what we want to do very soon, how we change our governance, actually, where we get the data from all of this, and also at what levels, because you can say, okay, we need something to do at the EU, but maybe the EU can also support sometimes a local level activity. Thank you so much. Thank you to Kunigunde for driving all this and developing the, the workshop. I came in very well, late. It's the coalition. It's the coalition. It's the entire coalition, but I know that you are very important in this coalition. And uh, have a nice lunch, and I'm waiting for the plenary. I'm really very interested to see Matsukato speaking. So thank you. Bye-bye.